This is Orson Welles, speaking from London. To keep you in suspense. I had to be everyday grind. Night transmissions. Night transmissions. Extraordinary crimes against the people and the state have to be avenged by agents extraordinary. Two such people are John Steed, top professional, and his partner, Emma Peel, talented amateur. Otherwise known as the Avengers. Maybe you recognize that. It's the theme from the TV show, The Avengers. This particular version is from the fourth series of The Avengers, which aired in England between 1965 and 1966. The reason we're playing it here on night transmissions is I'm about to play an episode of the South African radio series, The Avengers, also dedicated to the adventures of Steve and Emma. This program debuted on Monday the 6th of December of 1971, starring Donald Monet as John Steve and Diana Appleby as Emma Peel on Springbok Radio, a commercial service of the South African Broadcasting Company which in 1971 had no television service. And so people didn't really get to see the televised version of The Avengers, although it was in circulation as tapes. This video series is a 15-minute series that ran Monday through Friday for 22 adventures. Not 22 shows, mind you, 22 adventures. Each adventure usually ran to six or seven parts. And pretty much followed the style and tempo established by the BBC television series, where the Avengers ran from 1961 to 1969. Like the television series, the South African radio presentation features outlandish and quirky villains, a few mad scientists, and the occasional secret organization. This isn't particularly surprising because the South African series actually remade, well, you really can't say remade, they adapted. They adapted. That's it. They adapted from the TV series to radio. This particular episode, The Fantasy Game, which aired on Tuesday the 28th of March through Wednesday the 5th of April of 1972, for seven episodes, was based on the television episode Money for the Prince, which was written by Brian Clemens, and premiered in the UK on the 22nd of March of 1966. There's a couple of other things here. For one thing... I've re-edited the 15-minute segments. 
I've taken out the introduction to each program and then kind of also taken out the recapitulation of each program that has a recapitulation, you know, where they tell you what's happened so far, the story thus far. Figure you don't need to hear that. But I do think you're going to want to know where one episode left off and another one began. Besides that, yeah, I'm not sure I could do that all that seamlessly. So I've left this in as a sound cue. The Avengers. Whenever you hear that, you'll know that you've moved from one segment of the serial to the next. That's about all I got to say for now. Let's get to it. Now, from the makers of Cold Water Irma. The room had a definite Middle Eastern atmosphere. A high ceiling, no doors, but many curved ornamental archways covered by brocade curtains. Dim lighting from behind Moorish screens, and of course, the heavy scent of incense. It could have been a setting from a very old Hollywood movie of the Arabian Nights. From behind some heavy drapes, two men moved into the room, moving lightly over the rich Persian carpets. This is it all right, Ronnie? Yes, I think so, George. What an extraordinary setup. Quite. But you know what we always say. Once a foreigner, always a foreigner. Mm. Well, let's give the place a good going over. You search the desk. Right. There's nothing much here. God, it's very encouraging. Hey. Hey, look at this. What is it? <laughs> well, if I didn't know better, I'd say it was an Aladdin's lamp. You'd better rub it. It might be able to solve us all this work. <laughs> right. Here goes. Bring us luck, eh? The Avengers. and Emma Peel, The Avengers. Steed and Emma Peel embark on the strange case of the fantasy game. The skies over London were dark and filled with rain clouds. A cold wind blew the fine drizzle into deserted thoroughfares and empty alleyways. It was not a night to be out, and few people were. Big Ben sonorously chimed midnight. Half a mile away, the sound floated unnoticed through the ornate Arabian apartment where the two agents, Ronnie Westcott and George Reed, recoiled in amazement from the vivid flash of light that lit up the whole room. They gasped as smoke filled one corner and out of it stepped a shadowy figure in flowing robes. As the haze cleared, both men saw the snout of a Sten gun leveled towards them. No! No! Ah! 
George Reed was mowed down by a hail of bullets. Ronnie Westcott, who was closer to the arched entrance, sprinted through the velvet drapes as the Sten gun swung round on him. The figure ran forward in pursuit, firing all the time. When it reached the passageway, there was no sign of Ronnie. The man paused, crouched to the ground, wiped his hand on the carpet and brought it up sticky with blood. Clearly, Ronnie was hit. The man smiled cruelly and turned back into the room, standing over the body of George Reed with great satisfaction. continued to fall over London for the next two or three hours. Then the wind changed, the clouds disappeared, and by dawn it was dry and pleasant and far warmer. Across Hampstead Heath that morning came the sound of a woman's laughter. They'd been to a party which had lasted far longer than they'd anticipated. Oh, the top of the morning to you, Mrs. Beale. And a very good morning to you, Steed. If the morning's as fun as the night was, we should have a good day ahead. Right. Nothing like an early morning walk to start things off. Or finish things up. Coffee at my place, I think. Splendid suggestion. Good. Step out then, Mrs. Beale. Step out. A short while later, at the entrance to Steed's apartment... <laughs> <laughs> Coffee? Hello. Oh. Umbrella stand right across the hall. Uh, well, up with it. Uh, right. I'll attend to the bacon and eggs. Oh, two eggs for me, sunny side up. And I think I'd... What, what the devil's happened here? Steve looked around him. Two pictures on the walls were hanging awry. A third was knocked to the floor. A small table lay on its side, surrounded by broken glasses. You weren't expecting visitors, were you, Steed? Steed didn't reply, but moved to the kitchen to check the state of affairs there and in the other rooms. Mrs. Peel, looking around, found a mark on the wall almost hidden by the settee. The mark was blood, a stark red handprint. She knelt to examine it, and a second print lowered down. As she stretched out her hand... Please! Oh, no! A blood-stained hand reached to Mrs. Peel's. Ronnie Westcott was lying behind the settee, his eyes staring upwards in a glazed manner. The other hand was clutched to his chest, wet with blood. Mrs. Peel? Mrs. Peel, what is it? Oh, Ronnie. Ronnie Westcott. I'll phone for a doctor. No. No, mustn't. Mustn't. Leap down. Top security. I'm, I'm finished. Finished anyway. No, no, Doctor. How did this feel? Steed, listen carefully. George Reed, myself, who, we stumbled onto something big, important, full story in, in George's rooms. Evidence. Where is George? George is dead. Dead. Who did this, Ronnie? Who was it? Genie. Genie. Genie? Genie who? Who is she? Uh, uh, honey. Beware. Steed of... Of... Uh, uh, uh. <sighs> Ronnie Westcott. 
One of the best undercover men in the business. Was. Steed? Steed, what did he say? Something about a woman named Jeannie. A good-looking woman. He said she was a honey. Well, call MI5, Mrs. Beale. Q Division, Colonel Robertson. Tell him what's happened. He'll arrange to have Ronnie collected quietly without any fuss. Where will you be? He said there was a full report of all this in George's room. I'm going to collect it. Reed's dead body still lay where it had fallen hours before. The tapestries at the far end of the Arabian room were parted. A powerful-looking Turkish man entered, expensively, immaculately dressed. The robed assassin led him across to where the dead man lay. Hey, Mr. Arkady, uh, this is the man, and, and this is his wallet. Mm. Mm. George Reed. Mm. You say the other one got away, Vincent? Uh, yes, but uh, he was hit. Oh, I didn't miss him. He can't live long. I trust not. It is a pity you allowed him to escape. The thing to do now is cover all traces. I will attend to this one. Ah, an address. The address on this card from the wallet. You see what you can find. Yes, very well, Mr. And, uh, Vincent, whatever you find... Destroy it. George Reed, the late George Reed, lived in rooms in North London. John Steed knew where they were and drove over. But he was just a little late. The man, Vincent, got there ahead of him. He'd shed his conspicuous robes and he was dressed all in black. A sinister, slight figure who moved with assurance the front door of the apartments. Working skillfully at the lock, he was soon inside. Mm, George Reed. So this is where he lived. There were two rooms, a bed-sitting room and a smaller one that Reed must have used as a study. Vincent chose the latter, moved first to the desk, pulling out the drawers, rubbing through their contents. Breaking into the locked drawer ruthlessly... He found a metal waste paper basket and began filling it with the papers from the locked drawer. Then he moved to the filing cabinet. It was, of course, locked, but that didn't present any problems. Uh, easy. It must be in here. Mm. Ah. Yes, the file. The file marked QQF. Yes, all oh, this must go. Vincent tipped the contents into the waste paper basket and lit a match. He watched the flames devour the papers with satisfaction. When the last one had curled into a charred brown wafer, he took a ruler from the desk and stirred the ashes. Satisfied that no one could restore the contents, he moved towards the door. It was then that John Steed entered. Vincent quickly moved into the protection of a large cupboard that stood near the door. Steed entered cautiously and was immediately aware of the smell of burning. He looked around spotted the waste paper basket and moved over to it. Vincent, in the shadows, drew from his belt a long oriental dagger. Steed touched the waste paper basket and recoiled from the heat just as Vincent lunged forward. The knife came down, but Steed had moved sideways. The knife ripped his coat. Steed grabbed at the knife hand just in time. The two men grappled. Steed found himself staring at the stockinged mask. With a vicious twist, Vincent stabbed again, but Steed was prepared this time. The knife fell to the floor. 
Vincent got a better grip and tripped Steed, who fell back against the cabinet. Vincent moved in, but Steed bounced back from the cabinet, knocked Vincent sideways. Steed got a hold and with one swift movement threw Vincent over his head towards the window. The effort made Steed fall to his knees, but by the time he'd scrambled to his feet and made for the window, Vincent had picked himself up and was running down the alleyway. Steed paused, realized pursuit was impossible, and picked up the knife from the carpet. Mm. Well, this should be useful. Definitely not made in Sheffield. Steed placed the knife on the desk and inspected the filing cabinet and the waste paper basket. It was clear that Vincent had done a good job on getting rid of everything Steed was looking for. Finally, Steed moved over to the tall cupboard by the door. Cupboards filled with dozens of jars, all marked best British honey. This can't be for real. Steed's apartment, Mrs. Peel waited patiently. Eventually, the doorbell rang. Ah, Steed's forgotten his key. Not again. It was the postman. Morning, miss. Uh, Register package. Uh, just saw an air, will you? Oh, right. Thank you. Thank you, miss. Mrs. Peel moved back into the room. Ronnie Westcott's body had been removed, but she still glanced with apprehension towards the spot behind the settee. She sat down on the settee and studied the parcel, turning it over in her hands. On the back was a label. Mrs. Peel read, B. Bumble and Company, a gift from George Reed. Best British honey. Now, what the devil does that mean? What indeed? The Avengers. Hello? Ah, glad to know, Mrs. Peel. What's the news, Steve? Someone beat me to George Reed's rooms. Nasty creature wearing a mask and suffering from halitosis. Just as well he was wearing a mask, really. He got away leaving me with a ripped jacket and a curious dagger. Hmm. What about all the gem that the two agents had collected? Burned. So we don't know what they were on to? Not at the moment. Reed seems to have had a bit of a sweet tooth. He's got a whole cupboard filled with jars of Honey? Honey? Steve, you've just had a parcel through the post. It's a jar of honey sent by George Reed. What? Ah, well, that settles it. Ronnie Westcott said the word honey before he died. And there could be something contained in these jars. I'd better go through them all. It'll be a long job. Right. I'll pay a visit to B. Bumble and Company, makers of best British honey. Be a busy bee, Steve, won't you? Bye-bye. <laughs> Turkish gentleman, who was known as Arkady, was a health fiend and spent a considerable number of hours in the local health center. He was there, concealed to his neck in a steam box, when Vincent reported his recent encounter with Steed. So you left him there. That was very foolish, Vincent, very foolish. Now grab that towel and wipe my forehead. Yes, yes, of course. But I did destroy the files, Mr. Arkady. Nevertheless, there may be a general hue and cry. We must continue to cover all traces. Yes, Mr. Arkady. The honey shop, Bernie. Uh, Yes, sir. Now go with Vincent. Vincent, take Bernie with you. You seem unable to look after yourself. 
I'll take him and go to the honey shop. Check up there. You know what you have to do. Yes, Mr. And Bobby. don't fail this time. And tell them to get me out of this sweat box, please, now. So, both Mrs. Peel and the uh, opposition both made their way to the curious establishment of B. Bumble and Co. Outside the building hung the sign, Homemade Honey from Hilariously Happy Hives. Mrs. Peel raised an exquisitely curved eyebrow. Her lips twitched into a smile as she opened the door. Anyone at home? Obviously, no one in the hive. Who's there? Who's there? Ah, good morning, good morning, good morning, dear lady. Good morning. Good morning. Mrs. Peel found herself confronted by a rotund, cheerful little man who wore a beekeeper's hat with a veil and a long white coat. Oh, forgive me. I've been attending to my little charges, my bees, buzzing round their hives, so to speak. Oh, must be exhausting work. Oh, but rewarding, you know. Yes, 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 rewarding. I'm Bumble, be Bumble, always at your service. Oh? Uh, yes, yes, indeed, most rewarding. I treat my little bees like little children, for after all, happy bees make bumper bumble honey. Now, dear lady, what could I do for you? Well, I'd like to send some honey to a friend. Can you arrange that? But of course. Uh, that's what we're here for. Yes, 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 indeed I can. Bumble's honey encircles the globe. Syrup in Sweden, nectar in Niasaland, honey in the Himalayas. You just give me the address and I'll dispatch it post haste. Uh, how much do you wish to send? Uh, just a jar or two. Of uh, which particular kind? You see, our six-legged friends are very versatile. I have 365 different kinds of honey. Just imagine, breakfast toast for a whole year and never the same flavor twice. Except in leap year. Hmm? Oh. <laughs> quite so, quite so, quite so. <clears throat> well, I thought this would be rather nice. Mrs. Peel produced the honey jar sent to Steed by post. She handed it to Bumble, who peered at it short-sightedly. Uh, oh, yes, yes. It was at this point the shop door opened. Vincent and Bernie entered. Oh, I'll be with you soon. Won't keep you a moment, gentlemen. Now, let me see, let me see. Mm, yes, strength three, pure syrup without wax. Uh, two jars, you said. Well, now, if you'll just put the address on these labels. Yes, of course. Um, that jar was sent to me by a friend of mine. Uh, Mr. George Reed. Vincent, who had been studying bottles of honey on various shelves, immediately took notice. Perhaps you know him. Mr. George Reed? Reed, Reed, Reed. Oh, oh, oh no, dear lady, I'm sure you'll understand. We, we get so many customers, you know, so many. But this was sent only the day before yesterday. The postmark on the package said... Oh, the day before yesterday. Oh, well, in that case, of course, I wouldn't remember him. And you, dear lady, must be mistaken. But I'm not. I can't be. Oh, but you are. The day before yesterday, I was at the Baranian Embassy, making a personal delivery of my delicious honey. And this shop, dear lady, was shut. Are you sure? Of course I'm sure. Now, will that be all? Yes. Yes, thank you. You will see that the honey is dispatched right away, won't you? Oh, of course, of course. With Bumble, there's never a fumble. Never fear, dear lady, never fear. I'll try not to. Granny, follow her. Follow the girl. You know what to do. Right. And now, dear sir, what can I do for you? Just keep quiet to stop with. Vincent pointed the muzzle of his gun into the short, fat man's stomach. Get behind the counter. Quick. Come on, move. 
good steed. He'd been investigating the contents of those honey jars for hours. He was still clad in the dinner jacket from the party of the night before. Lots of empty jars surrounded him as he pitched yet another quantity of honey down the sink in George Reed's kitchen. The telephone rang. Steed resisted the desire to wipe his fingers on his torn jacket. He licked them instead and headed for the phone. Hello? Speaking, who is this? We haven't actually met, but I am Ponsonby Hopkirk. Uh, Ponsonby Hopkirk of QQF. Uh, oh, yes. I, I understand that you made an appointment to see me at the QQF this morning. Well, I wonder if you'd mind making it a bit later. Say, say, say 12 o'clock. Would that be all right? Uh, oh, yes, uh, yes, perfectly. Uh, good, good, good. I see you later then. Uh, Mr. Hopkirk, uh, Mr. Hopkirk, uh, this is silly of me, but uh, the uh, QQF, I... Silly, I, I've quite forgotten the address. Oh, Beaver Street, Mr. Deed. Uh, 10 Beaver Street. Uh, yes, I know, but, uh, hello? Uh, are you there? Hello? <laughs> QQF Beaver Street? Beaver Street is in Westminster, a short street leading down to the Thames. Steed had little difficulty in finding it, parked outside, and slipping his overcoat over the torn dinner jacket, he approached a door which read, The QQF Inc. Knock and enter. Steed did so. Steed found himself in the passageway leading to the Arabian room. Soft carpets clung to the walls, tapestries draped them, and there was a heavy smell of incense. Back in the Middle East after all these years, and the difference is that it's so badly lit. Not even a red light inside. Oh, well. Steed moved forward, and pushing aside the drape over the archway, entered the main room. It appeared to be empty. A dry cough from behind a Moorish screen made him swing round. <coughs> oh, I beg your pardon. I, I was looking for a Mr. Hopkirk. I am Napoleon. Huh? At least that is whom I'm about to become. Please do not disturb me. Steed, peering through the gloom, saw the reclining figure of a man dressed as Napoleon lying on a divan. Steed approached. Uh, look, I'm, I'm terribly sorry about that retreat from Moscow, and I, I don't wish to disturb your dreams about Josephine, but I, I am still looking for Mr. Ponsonby Hopkirk. Uh, Mr. Ponsonby Hopkirk of the QQF? Ah, did I hear my name mentioned? Mr. Ponsonby Hopkirk. Uh, Mr. Reed, isn't it? Mr. George Reed. Uh, yes, the, that is... Uh, uh, yes. Let, let me take you by the hand, Mr. Reed. Well, if you insist. Uh, welcome to the QQF. Uh, doubly welcome. Uh, you're not in a great hurry, are you? Uh, well, uh, you'll wait. You, you'd like tea, coffee perhaps, or a drink? A drink. Right, right away, right away. Ponsonby Hopkirk reached out a hand and took up what appeared to be a replica of an Aladdin's lamp. He rubbed it suddenly. Hey, Presto, open sesame and all those camp sayings. Look! Steed looked. Appearing through the haze of smoke stepped an attractive, scantily dressed young lady. She advanced towards him. Would you like something? Uh, well, I... Uh... How do you like my little genie? Genie? A service with a smile, eh? We live up to our name. QQF. Quite, quite fantastic. We live out everyone's fantasies for them. And so 
relieve the emotional tensions. Uh, tell me, are there any fantasies we can do for you? Oh, well, at the moment, I think I've got my brain full. Uh, do you mind if I sit down and think all this out, Mr. Ponsonby Hopkirk? <laughs> Bernie followed Mrs. Peel, who made her way back to John Steed's apartment. She'd just got in and was checking the postmark on the package of honey that had been sent to Steed when the doorbell rang. Now, who the devil's that? Steed back? Oh, surely not. Bernie stood in the doorway. He was holding his hat deferentially in front of him. There was a menacing silence. Bernie said, Good day. Uh, may I come in for a minute? Mrs. Peel looked at him, sensed something very wrong, and jumped aside just as... Bernie fired through the hat, missed Mrs. Peel by inches. She grabbed the door and swung it back on his hand. Bernie ah! leapt forward. Mrs. Peel chopped at his gun hand. The gun went off again. Mrs. Peel closed in, fighting for her life. <laughs> she couldn't make him drop the gun. All she could do was prevent him from turning it upon her. He was strong. Too strong for Mrs. Peel, she changed her tactics, let go of the gun arm, and seized the other one. She gave a terrific throw, and Irish whipped him sideways across the room. He hurtled across a table and crashed into the wall. Mrs. Peel hurried over to where Bernie lay on the floor. She turned him over. His eyes gazed up, staring at sightless. He still held the gun, crooked back against his chest. There was a small hole in his coat. A red stain seeped across his shirt. He was dead. Extraordinary crimes against the people and the state have to be avenged by agents extraordinary. Two such people are John Steed, top professional and his partner, Emma Peel, talented amateur. Otherwise known as the Avengers. Meanwhile, John Steed sat in the Arabian room of QQF waiting his turn to be interviewed by Mr. Ponsonby Hopkirk. Next to him, a gentleman dressed as Napoleon sat sullen and silent. The curtains parted. Hopkirk fussed his way into the room, ushering a man in mountaineering dress in front of him. Uh, goodbye, Sir Hilary, for another week. Uh, we'll get to the top next week. Uh, meanwhile, I, I think you've done awfully well to ever reach the South Pole. Uh, goodbye. Now, now, who's next? Ah, yes, yes, you, sir. Napoleon. Come, everything is ready for you. Wellington is just getting his boots on. It's the far room on the right. Look for the sign saying Waterloo. Napoleon got up, thrust one hand into the front of his coat, and marched off without a word. Hopkirk turned to Steed. Now, Mr. Reed, I'm so sorry to keep you waiting, uh, but it's, it's been so busy here today. Four men who wanted to be cowboys, can you imagine? Some people never grow up. <clears throat> we have staged the gunfight at the old corral in order to satisfy them. Oh, such a production, I assure you. Everyone wants to be ambushed. Uh, but now, 
I can give you my undivided attention. So tell me, what can QQF do for you? Well, firstly, I'd like to know a little more of what it's all about. Oh, you haven't received our literature, our advertising handouts? I'm afraid not. Oh, dear, 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 how very remiss of me. Well, then, the QQF is the Quite Quite Fantastic Incorporated. We help you to satisfy your innermost repressed desires. All of us are dreamers, you know. We indulge in fantasies such as uh, what I would do if I won the Irish sweep, uh, what it would be like to spend an hour or so with Bridget Bardot. Oh, all very healthy. But some people find it hard to get rid of their fantasies in action. They become repressed and subsequently depressed. We, in a nutshell, Mr. Reed, create the fantasies and let you live them, getting rid of all those nasty repressions. Uh, would you like some hide crumpets and a pot of tea? Honey? Or, or jam? Or treacle? Uh, no, thank you. No. Oh, it all began with the Arabian Nights, you know. Uh, what the... The QQF? Yes, yes. As a boy, I was fascinated by the tales of the Arabian Nights. I would dream of living in that exotic era. Uh, then one day I thought, well, why dream? Why not make... My dream of reality. I see. After that, it was easy. I created this place. Oh, it was a matter of the right decor, the right atmosphere, oh, plus a few tricks. <laughs> this Aladdin lamp, for instance. Hopkirk picked up the lamp and waved it under Steed's nose. Uh, rubbing it sets up an electronic impulse that rings the bell in the cellar. My little genie then pops up through a trapdoor in the floor. Oh, just a theatrical trick, but a very effective one, don't you think? Very. Uh, then I started to think of the commercial possibilities, creating other people's dreams and fantasies. And so QQF was born. I see. Uh, within these portals, Mr. Reed, you can stand beside Nelson at Trafalgar, fight with General Custer, become Genghis Khan, a Roman emperor, a world heavyweight champion of the world. A million fantasies can be created with a few simple tricks such as you have already seen. I don't care if it actually happened or not. I'm not taking any more, I tell you. They can march on their stomachs as much as they like. I'm leaving. Uh, goodbye, Mr. Hopkirk. The man who was dressed as Napoleon stomped through the Arabian room, his face blackened, one sleeve of his jacket missing, the sole of one boot split and flapping, and an enormous hole through his hat. Goodbye, Mr. Napoleon. Don't worry. Better luck next time. Now, Mr. Reed... Your own fantasy. Could I suggest an intrepid trapper? Or a cavalryman at Balaclava? Aha. Oh, I see you wear a dinner jacket in the daytime. Do I detect a suppressed desire to be a band leader, perhaps? Uh, not really. No. You wish to break the bank at Monte Carlo? Or, ah, got it. You want to be a secret agent. A steed gave Hopkirk a keen look. Think you're being sent up, Steed? Uh, yes, yes, indeed. Ideal for you. Licensed to kill. Pitting your wits against a diabolical mastermind. Uh, make a nice change for your everyday humdrum existence, wouldn't it? Oh, well, absolutely, yes. Yes, certainly. Certainly make a change. Uh, but no doubt you have a little fantasy of your own. Uh, what do you find attractive? Well, I quite like that bit about an hour with Brigitte Bardot. Oh, but, um... Well, actually, you know, I, I think I'd like the same as Ronnie Westcott. Eh? Ronald Westcott. Well, he, he is a client of yours, isn't he? Westcott? Uh, Westcott? Ronnie Westcott? Oh, yes, 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 but I hardly think you, you did create a fantasy for him, didn't you? Well, I was working on it, yes, but uh, I wouldn't have thought it was you. Oh, come now, if it was good enough for Ronnie. Uh, well, all right. I'll let you know when it's arranged. 
I can't say how long it will take, but uh, I'll be in touch when it's ready. Fine, fine. Thank you so much. I'll be getting along then. Oh, uh, by the way, what is it? The fantasy? I mean, what am I to be? Oh, chief eunuch in a harem. Hmm. Richard Bardo's no good to you now, Steed. Steed went home rather quickly, and who could blame him? He still looked a little stunned as he entered his apartment and made for the liquor cabinet, pouring himself a large drink. It was then that he noticed a pair of legs sticking out from behind the settee. Sighing impatiently, he picked up the phone and put through a call. Hello? Hello, Q-Division? Is that Colonel Robertson, Steed here? Yeah, look, Colonel, didn't Mrs. Peel tell you about the body in my flat? She did? Well, look, would you mind having it removed right away, please? Yeah, but it's very untidy, and I don't know what the cleaning woman will think, would she? What's that? You already have? Well, hold on. Steed peered over the back of the settee at Bernie. Oh, my apologies, Colonel. No, it's another body entirely. Yes, yes, a different one. Well, Colonel, I have absolutely no control what happens here while I'm out. No, I am not trying to corner the market. I, And furthermore, I... But the line went dead. <sighs> Everything's dead. Except Ponsonby Hopkirk's fantasy. They're far too much alive for my liking. Murder, mayhem, corpses littering the living room. I've got a distinct feeling that this is going to be one of those days. The Avengers. John Steed stood in his apartment, staring down at the body behind the settee. Murder, mayhem, and mystery. Go out leaving one body behind there and come back to find another in its place. Corpses littering the living room. I don't know what the old place is coming to. Steed poured himself a large drink, and it was then that he noticed his tape recorder was open. There was a message scrawled on it. It read, Flamey, please. And so Steed did. And Emma Peel's voice said, Steed, sorry about the body, but it was too big to sweep under the carpet. Nothing on him to identify him, but I saw him earlier at B. Bumble and Company. That's the honey shop, by the way. I'll tell you about it later. Must buzz back to bumblebees. Bye for now. Hello? Hello, Mr. Bumble? Mr. Bumble? Oh, there you are, Mr. Bumble. I wonder if you could tell... Mrs. Peel walked across the shop to the counter. Bumble sat behind it, propped up on his elbows, apparently dozing. Mr. Bumble? He was dead. Mrs. Peel was about to move away when she noticed a scrap of paper by the body. She picked it up and looked at it. It was headed... Application form, the QQF Incorporated. 10 Beaver Street. Name, Vincent East. Hmm. Worth a try, I suppose. Vincent East, whose application form now rested in Mrs. Peel's handbag, was reporting back to his boss, Arkady, who was sitting on a couch in the health center, manicuring his nails. My dear Vincent... Now, what has happened to Bernie? I don't know, Mr. Arkady. He's been gone a number of hours. He should have reported back by now. Well, he ought to have. Should? Ought? It would have been better if you attended to the girl yourself, Vincent. Yes, Mr. Arkady, but you said that... Uh, uh, we'll give him one hour, no more. Then we must presume the worst. 
and take the necessary action. Uh, yes, Mr. Arkady. Um, the uh, QQF. Hey, you are due there soon, are you not? Make haste then, Vincent, make haste. You mustn't miss your third fantasy, must do. Mrs. Peel had no difficulty in finding the QQF, and pretending to be a newspaper woman, she quickly got in to see Mr. Hopkirk, who immediately outlined the function of the organization to her. Mrs. Peel listened in fascination. A specific cases, you say? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I suppose my most ambitious fantasy to date was the sinking of the Titanic. Several of my staff had to be resuscitated afterwards. Any failures? Oh, never. Although the Titanic was nearly sabotaged by an elderly actress who claimed to have been in cavalcade and said no cards was far more satisfying, I ask you. Of course, my list of successes is enormous. Hannibal crossing the Alps and very many assassinations, riding a derby winner. Assassinations? Yes, we've had several of those. Very difficult, some of them. Uh, well, how can you go about an assassination uh, for our readers? Well, first our client selects his victim. A VIP, perhaps, or an important businessman. Then we arm our client with this. Hopkirk produced an automatic with a long snout and a telescopic sight on top. And then we put him in a position to use it. Uh, we allow him to actually get his victim in his sights. And then... Then? Uh, Hopkirk brought the gun round to face Mrs. Peel. He pulled the trigger. Then he has a fine photograph to commemorate the occasion. Oh, I see. A camera gun. Correct. It helps the client to get a great deal out of his system and no one gets hurt. I can't tell you the number of mothers-in-law who've been harmlessly disposed of in this way. I see. Now, Mr. Hopkirk, if I could know a bit more about your clients. Clients? Yes. Vincent East, for instance. I understand he is a client of yours. Mrs. Peel, I regret that I am unable to discuss individuals. The ethics of my business, you understand. My lips are sealed. Oh, but surely... No, 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 no. I must insist. It would be a betrayal. Well, thank you anyway. Goodbye. It's been a pleasure, Mrs. Peel. And if you should ever wish to join QQF... Uh, a fantasy, perhaps? Thank you, Mr. Hopkirk, but I haven't yet exhausted reality. Goodbye. As Mrs. Peel made her way out of one exit, a hurrying girl, working as an usherette, showed Vincent East in through another draped archway. Hopkirk immediately stepped forward. Ah, Mr. Vincent, are we ready for our third fantasy? In a really nice, murderous mood? Uh, today, I hope. <laughs> center sometime later, Mr. Arkady was having his neck massaged by a very attractive young blonde. Mm. Uh, a little lower down, more to the right shoulder. Uh, that's it. That's beautiful. Now, uh, you pass the telephone, please. The girl left off massaging. Arkady put through a call. The girl resumed the massage. Arkady eventually got through. QQF. May I speak, please, to Mr. Vincent East? Hmm? Thank you. Ah, yes, that feels easier. Now, now the left shoulder. That's it. Oh, hello, Vincent. Your bad news. Bernie has not returned. It's over an hour. Well, of course I know what it means. It's an awful boy, though. But you will have to kill Hopkirk. Goodbye. Bye. 
Mrs. Peel returned to John Steed's apartment and this time found him at home. Steed had changed his clothes, but his mood still remained gloomy. Mrs. Peel, we're getting nowhere fast. Westcott, Reed, man behind the city. And poor old Bumble. Where the devil does the honey fit in? I'm down if I know. I went through all the jars in George Reed's cupboard and there's nothing concealed in any of them. Yet honey's got something to do with it. Well, it's a sticky business altogether. I mean, there must be a link somewhere. Why else would George Reed have sent you a jar? I don't know, but one thing's for certain. Reed and Westcott weren't killed for jars of honey. <sighs> and then there's the QQF. Yes, quite, quite fantastic. We both had a go and neither of us got very far there, did we? So why Ronnie signed on there came as a bit of a surprise. I mean, well, I mean, I can understand the harem, but the other... Well, I mean, to want to be that is a fantasy in itself. Harem? Yes, the, the part of the fantasy that Ronnie ordered. Harem? Wait a minute. Bumble said something about the Bahrainian Embassy. He made a delivery there. Bahrainian Embassy Harim. Bahrainian Embassy Harim. Two agents dead. Mm -hmm. You think of what I'm thinking, Mrs. Peel? Where's the newspaper, Steve? There, on the side table. No chance to read it yet. I'll get it. Gin prices to rise sharply. Mother won't like that. Hmm. Radio serial disturbing influence. I'm not mad about that either. Ah, here we are. Strict security arrangements at the Bahrainian Embassy. Crown Prince Ali arrives today. Mm. Steed? Hopkirk told me he often had to dream up an assassination. Come on, Mrs. Peel. And in the Arabian room at QQF, Hopkirk was not only holding the floor, he was pacing it. Now, now, Mr. Finton, let us rehearse it just once again. No, if you insist. Now, now, I am the Crown Prince Ali. And you, the murderer, are concealed, say, uh, here. Now, come along. Oh, oh, very well. You don't sound very enthusiastic, and we must have enthusiasm. Uh, now, I am perhaps uh, enjoying a quiet smoke. Hopkirk picked up a hookah and began to draw the smoke through the long, flexible tube. The water in the bowl of the vase bubbled gently. Ah, now, you have not revealed yourself yet. The moment of surprise has yet to come. You hold your gun at the ready. Uh, the gun, Vincent. The gun on the table. Vincent picked up the camera gun. And when Hopkirk half turned away, placed it back on the table and took a real gun from his belt. Now then, choose your moment. And well. Then up you pop. Now. Right. No, 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 man. You're not putting enough into it. You won't get, you won't get any satisfaction out of your fantasy unless you put something into it. Think. Think murderously. Lift the gun a, a little bit higher. Your whole expression is too bland, too too unconvincing for words. You wouldn't frighten a fly off the wall. Now fix me with your eye and think to yourself, I am going to kill him. I am going to kill him. Ah, much better. Much more realistic. Vincent didn't even look at Hopkirk. He moved swiftly to the table and picked up the top file. QQF Incorporated. Fantasy number three. Subject, assassination of the Crown Prince Ali of Bahrain. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Hopkirk. Thank you for planning it all so nicely. Uh, don't worry. I'll see it's all carried out to the letter. <laughs>
ninjas. They made good time to number 10 Beaver Street, but by the time they got into the Arabian room, Vincent had gone, and Hopkirk lay on the floor, dying. Uh, uh, gently, gently, now, gently. Uh, fan fantastic. Quite fantastic. Steed, look at this file on the table. QQF Fantasy Number 3. Subject, the assassination of Crown Prince Ali of Bahrain. And the file is empty. Hopkirk. Hopkirk. No, no, no good. Hopkirk, this, this fantasy, the murder of Prince Ali. Now, when's it to take place? Tomorrow. Do tomorrow night. But how, Hopkirk? How? I've got to stop it. Tell me how. Too late. Plan's been taken. It's already underway. It's too late to stop it now. Just too late. Back in Steed's apartment, Steed mixed a hefty drink. You're getting as bad as Mother, Steed. Cheers, Steed. Cheers. Although at the moment, there's really not much to cheer about, is there, Mrs. Beale? What are we going to do? Well, why don't you just go to the Crown Prince and tell him there's going to be an attempt on his life tomorrow? Oh, I can't do that. Well, it seems simple enough. Well, look what it says here in the newspaper. You know why he's come over here. Hmm. To sign over the oil concessions in our favor. Exactly. In return for which, we will give his country full military protection. Well? Well, what faith will he have in our military protection if we admit that we can't protect him, one man, right here in our own country? Oh, point taken, Steed. It could ruin the whole deal. He'd take his business elsewhere. No, no, we'll have to be more subtle. Think something out. I wonder what Hocker planned. Steed, do you think the killer will use a gun? A gun, a knife. Yes, yes, remember that ornamental dagger? It does all seem to fit in. Or poison. Why poison? Well, I was thinking about those wretched jars of honey. They've got to fit in somewhere, too. They're important somehow. Well, whatever method the would-be murderer employs, he's got to get close enough to use it. And one thing's certain. Prince Ali won't step outside the embassy once he's in there. Mm, I agree. That means the killer's got to be smuggled in. Well, that's it, the major difficulty. He has got to get into the embassy somehow. And so have I. The reception hall of the Bahrainian embassy is large, opulent, and beautifully furnished in a Middle Eastern style. A gong crashed out. Along the corridor hurried a large man wearing traditional Arab robes. He approached a dais in the hall and prostrated himself on a large cushion. I crave pardon for this intrusion, Your Majesty. And what is it, Grand Vizier? An effendi from the British government, most high and gracious one. He begs to be admitted to your most high, illustrious presence. Mm, is he to be trusted? His credentials have been checked once, twice, thrice times over, O oh High One. His person has been searched for offensive weapons. I, who am only a speck upon the camel's back, a lowly, ignorant toad in all seeing eyes, think he can be trusted. Then admit him. At once. At once, master of wisdom, with all speed. The vizier waddled out and whispered to John Steed. 
You enter with the head bowed. Do not speak until his highness addresses you. Advance with the head bowed. Steed nodded and was ushered into the presence. Effendi Steed, your majesty. Now, what is your business, Mr. Steed? A social call, your highness. I'm with the Ministry of Eastern Affairs. We merely wish to ensure that your majesty is enjoying his stay in this country. Thank you. You may gaze upon the royal features. Steed raised his head and looked at an extremely nice-looking young fellow of 30. Boyishly handsome, dressed in flowing robes and traditional headcloth. On behalf of my peoples and my country, I, Ali Belshazzar Mohamgabar, Crown Prince of Bahrain, defender of the faith, soother of all souls, lighter of dark corners, maker of men's destiny, fountain of wisdom, welcome thee, uh, vizier, you may retire. Yes, so great one. The vizier backed carefully through the curtains. The prince got up from the dais and said, That's got rid of him, thank heavens. Uh, do you play cricket, Mr. Steen? Oh, well, yes, yes, I do, but... Bowler or batsman? Well, but an all-rounder, Your Majesty. Oh, but... jolly good. <laughs> the prince tossed aside his traditional robes and appeared dressed as an ordinary young Englishman in white slacks and an open-necked shirt. Henry? Your Highness. The guard at the door snapped to attention. Set up the wicket and get over to the far door to keep an eye out for the jolly old Grand Vizier. He's one of the old school, you know, Mr. Steed. Bit of a stickler for tradition. The prince reached behind the throne and produced a cricket bat and ball. Harold, Herbert, take up fielding positions. Two guards leapt forward at the command. The prince tossed the ball to Steed and took his place at the wicket. Ah, right. Send him down good and fast, Steed. Come on, that's a royal command from the Fountain of Wisdom and all that stuff. Oh, very well, Your Highness. Steed shrugged his shoulders, paced away to the end of the hall, and started to bowl. That's the style. Keep him coming, keep him coming. While Steed was playing cricket with the Crown Prince, Mr. Arkady, the curiously healthy Turkish gentleman, was in the health centre again. He was lying on a slab under a sunray lamp and wearing nothing but dark glasses. Vincent entered. I have been reading the QQF's plan. I have no doubt that if we follow the instructions as laid down, you will penetrate the security of the Bahrainian embassy, and it will all work out very smoothly. Now, Hopkirk certainly knows his business. <laughs> knew his business? Uh, quite. As you say, knew. Uh, are you ready to go? Uh, yes, Mr. Arkady. Uh, I've overlooked nothing uh, except the payoff. Arkady regarded him distastefully through his dark glasses and picked up a towel. He unrolled it and revealed a pile of notes. Vincent picked up the pile eagerly, then reacted amazed. The notes had been neatly cut in halves. Arkady gently retained one half with an elegant finger. <laughs> A half now, and the other half when the job is done. Those were the agreed terms. Yes, but when you said uh, half, I, I thought you meant... Uh, I mean, uh, I expected half the amount. <laughs> not, we, uh, we must try to trust one another, my dear Vincent. We really must. Now, take your time about the job. A sure aim. And one nice big bang. John Steed had to admit that Prince Ali was a far better batsman than he was a bowler. Yeah, <laughs> I think a break for tea is clearly indicated. You would like some tea, Mr. Steed? 
Oh, thank you, Your Highness. Yes, yes, I would. Uh, you summoned, oh, great and high one. I certainly did. Tea, Vizier, for myself and my guests. Instantly, Your Highness. The Vizier clapped his fleshy hands, and instantly the curtains parted. Two heavily veiled harem girls appeared through the drapes, carrying trays of tea and various things to eat. Well, I've heard of instant refreshments, but uh, now that, that really is service. Oh, we don't stand any laxity, you know, Steve. Uh, these are a couple of my wives, by the way. Oh, uh, number four and number... Oh, let's take a closer look at... Ah, number 33. Charming girl. Cost me a bag of salt and four goats. I've got lots more out the bag. Uh, goats? Wives. Matter of status, you see, having a lot of them. Vizier, how many wives at the last count? 239. You're mighty one. I should think you'd have to be mighty, too, with that lot. I see your eyes flashing at the prospect, Mr. Steed. Eh? But did you stop to consider that a man with 239 wives also acquires 239 mothers-in-law? Eh? That's a very sobering thought. Ah, well, then. Here are hot scones. Would you, uh, what would you like with him? A little goat's cream? Papyrus jelly? Hmm? Uh, you, you haven't got any honey, have you? Honey? Ugh, I loathe the stuff. Dear honey for Mr. Steed, and make sure you taste everything on the trays before we eat. I'm sorry to insist on this, Mr. Steed, but you see, so many people want to kill me. Would you believe that? The Avengers. I shall have a little of that, uh, two of those, a cup of lemon tea and some gooseberry jam on one of the hot scones. Oh, uh, yes, Your Highness. Well, hurry up and taste a lot. Immediately, oh, great and powerful one. Uh, the great and powerful one is also the hungry one. Mm. Steed watched with interest as the Grand Vizier moved round the trays, sipping tea and crunching biscuits, sucking a spoonful of gooseberry jam. No discomfort? None, Your Majesty. Not even the slightest twinge? No, O oh gracious one. The food is pure enough for the devourer of evil to consume. The devourer of evil has no wish to devour evil. That's the whole point of the exercise. The Grand Vizier tastes everything for me, Mr. Steed. So I observe. There's always some nut trying to pop me off. have to be extremely careful. Why, only last year we discovered that two of my cooks were members of uh, the Pale Mauve May movement. Oh, indeed. What steps did you take? Oh, I liberated them for good. But come, Mr. Steed, what about you? Tea? Uh, thank you, yes. Uh, two lumps. But you haven't got your honey. Well, it really isn't important. I, I think I prefer the gooseberry jam. Please don't bother. This, this looks fine. Uh, you, you say you loathe honey, Your Highness. I oh, can't bear it. Never touch it. Far too sweet for my taste. My wives, though, they love it. All of them. Oh, is that so? Yes, yes. No idea how much they eat. 239 tummies to fill is a devil of a lot. I had to order loads of honey while I'm here. Ah, and you order best British honey, of course. Of course. From B. Bumble and Company, of course? Of course. Yes, that's right. Forty jars of the stuff. A whole truckload. I see. Forty jars? One truckload? Oh, they weren't small jars like the gooseberry jam. They were special. Prince-sized jars. More like the ones around the walls. The prince indicated with a wave of his hand an enormous Alibaba-type jar standing in the corner. Forty man-sized jars. May I see them? Impossible. They're all in there. Again, the prince gestured with an elegant wave of his hand, this time towards a draped doorway flanked by burly guards. Steed got to his feet. Well, surely your, your highness won't mind if I have a quick look. 
But as Steed moved forward, the two guards at the entrance jumped to attention and slammed their scimitars across the doorway, barring the entrance. You can't go in there, Steed. No man can, except me. That is my harem. You are listening to Night Transmissions. want to alarm you, but there is more to come. You can't go in there, Steed. No man can, except me. That is my harem. Shortly after this, Steed admitted defeat and went home. Mrs. Peel was waiting for him. He outlined his ideas to her. Well, it's clear enough, Mrs. Beale, it's the old Ali Barbar and the Forty Thieves plot again. It's a typical Punsonby Hopkirk fantasy. He was always kinky about the Arabian Nights. This one's right up his street. Hmm, could be. I'm sure of it. Well, what do we do now? Uh, well, I, um, I, I bought you a present. I'd like to try it on. Steed reached into his coat pocket and withdrew an eastern yashmak. He held it over the lower half of Mrs. Peel's face. Hmm, yes. Oh, is it suits you? No, Steve. Is that the color of your eyes? I said no. But Mrs. Peel, uh, only a woman has any hope of getting into the prince's harem. I absolutely and positively refuse. Now, look, that's where the killer is hiding, I'm sure of it. It's the QQF suggested fantasy plot. The assassin is concealed in one of those 40 jars. The rest are all honey, but one has a killer concealed in it. Now, look, I can't get in there, and you can. No, Steve. I'm not joining anyone's harem. The prince is quite good-looking, young, attractive and rich. I don't care if he's Paul Newman. The answer's still no. <sighs> well, but if Prince Ali is murdered and you have to go through the rest of your life thinking, if only I had agreed to help... Now, see, that's not fair. That's blackmail and I... <sighs> All right. Tell me the worst. Well, the prince has invited me to dinner tonight. And you are taking another guest along? Well, not a guest, exactly. Uh, tell me, Mrs. Peel, what size do you take in puff trousers? Later that day, in the health center, Arkady, the Turk, had finished bathing and was dressing for dinner. His manservant was helping him into a large corset, lacing it around Arkady's middle. <coughs> oh, no. The last lace hole. <clears throat> Try now, now. Yes, sir. Uh, I, 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 I not wish to hurt you. Oh, well, I say, go, go, go. Well, uh, that is it. Well, it is very good. Very good. Very slim. Very beautiful. Thank you, thank you. I think so, too. Yeah, the, uh, the cummerbund. The pistol in the cummerbund, sir. Uh, no, no, I regret. I will be unable to smuggle it in. The search will be rigorous. Ah, that's it. Now, the coat? Ah, uh, yes, sir. That is good. I must hurry now. It will not do to be late for the prince's dinner party. His first dinner party. And his last. Vincent will see to that. Yes, it should be quite a night. Quite a night. The 
reception hall at the Bahrainian embassy had been prepared for a sumptuous feast. The prince, clad in resplendent ceremonial robes, was seated on a cushion at the head of the feast. John Steed, in black tie, was seated next to him. The Grand Vizier was kept busy introducing the guests. I'm uh, extremely flattered to be asked to your dinner party and be allowed such a place of honor, Your Highness. It's my pleasure, old boy. I haven't met anyone in this country who bowls leg breaks as well as you do. These things are important, you know. Don't you think so? Um, has the Grand Vizier tasted all this food? Well, of course. No wonder he's putting on weight. Allow me to offer you this delicacy. Mountain rat's tails in aspic. Ah, well, actually, I'm trying to give them up a habit forming. Here, your hands. You may be allowed to present my compliments. Arkady, nice to see you again. Oh, it was most gracious of you to invite me, sir. I trust your highness is in excellent health. Indeed, indeed I am. Oh, Mr. Steed, may I present Mr. Arkady? Oh, Mr. Steed, I am delighted to know. Mr. Steed is a rival of yours, Arkady. He's from the British government. Oh, and congratulations. You beat us to it. Oh? The oil concessions. Uh, my country hopes to obtain them in exchange for our military protection. Oh, I understand. Um, Your Highness, as this feast seems to have satisfied the inner man, uh, might I be allowed to provide a, a little entertainment to follow it? Oh, by all means, Mr. Steed. Uh, be seated, Arkady. Continue, Mr. Steed. Thank you. Very well. Steed rose and made a gesture to one of the guards, who struck the gong. Your Highness, with your permission, may I present to you and your guests the Star of the East, Emma. The curtains parted, and Mrs. Peel, heavily veiled and dressed as a harem dancer, snaked into the room to the accompaniment of suitable music. The prince leaned forward with interest as Mrs. Peel began to dance, removing one veil after another. After four down and three to go, Steed muttered, Ooh, not bad, not bad, Mrs. Peel. Not bad? She's splendid. I am pleased, well pleased. The prince leaned forward and licked his lips as the dance ended. Six veils. I, I counted only six veils. There's still one more. Uh, well, she was poorly educated, unless she cannot count. I would speak to this woman. Oh, certainly. Uh, Emma, over here, please. Yes, master. I know what you're saying. We don't want to offend the offended. Mrs. Peel stepped forward. The prince gestured to his side. Mrs. Peel sat down between him and Steve. A shy one, eh? Not much to say. Retarded. Definitely retarded. Mrs. Peel shot Steed a look over her yashback that made the death of a thousand knives appear a compliment. I offer twelve goats for this woman. It's a great deal to offer, but I have taken a fancy to her. I will buy her from you. Yeah, but, but, Your Highness, I, I couldn't possibly. I, I, I mean... It seems, Your Highness, that the British have no respect for your wishes. Now, if it were my government that were so I, 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 I was about to say that I, I couldn't possibly accept anything. No, no, goats, not even the smallest nanny. If you like her, she's yours. I, I give her to you. You can put her into your harem at any time. Steed is a five-letter word. The Avengers. It is agreed, then. Vizier? Oh, great one, I am here. Take her. Go with him, woman. I shall be along later. 
Mrs. Peel, thrust through the door of the harem, wasn't very pleased with John Steed. If I ever get my talons on Steed, he's going to have scars to show for quite some time. So this is how they do it, do they? Mrs. Peel walked down what was virtually a corridor of little draped cubicles. Above these cubicles were small, tastefully engraved plaques. Sharon? Mona? Ruth? Oh, dear. All we need to come across now is a duty roster. Mrs. Peel walked the length of the corridor, and opening another small door, found herself in a large storeroom. Storeroom? This is more like it. Ah, large ornamental jars. Approaching the jars cautiously, Mrs. Peel inspected them. Bumble's best honey keeps your strength up. Well, let's see what it contains. Hmm, honey, all right. Well, if there's a man hidden in there, I don't fancy his chances. One down, 39 to go. In the main reception hall, the dinner party was over. The guests had left, and only John Steed and Arkady were seated on cushions near the prince. Steed was working hard. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very amusing, Mr. Steed. <laughs> very amusing, old boy. <laughs> Mm. Uh, another drink, Your Highness. And um, please, uh, tell me more about your camels. I fear we are detaining, Your Highness. Yeah, your Highness must be extremely tired. Your first reception, you must be anxious to retire. Oh, yes, as a matter of fact... Oh, I will... come, come. The evening is young, and, and all this is so entertaining. Well, there is entertainment and uh, entertainment, Steve, eh? <laughs> yes, well, before we take our leave, may I be allowed to offer Your Highness a small gift? Steed produced a small portable tape recording machine and placed it next to the prince. Uh, just press the button, Your Highness. Oh, uh, like this? Strokes it into the covers and Karu feels there's no run. Ah, cricket! 2.16.5. Katie runs behind. And... Gibbs again into bowl to close. It's a full commentary of the last test minute. That is kind, most kind. We're pleased to accept, Mr. Steed. Uh, do you play cricket, Mr. Arkady? No, 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 alas, no, I, I don't. Oh, it's the most pleasant of games. Um, actually, th this is a double tape. You press this button on the other side and it plays the second track, uh, like this. especially recorded for you, Your Highness. Oh, very nice. <laughs> Makes me quite homesick. Uh, but you carry your home with you wherever you go, Your Highness. Your whole entourage awaits you. Oh, yes, 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 you are right, Arkady. The prince switched off the recorder and yawned once again. Oh, I fear you're right, Arkady. I, I am rather tired. Uh, in that case, we ask permission to withdraw. Uh, yes, yes, I, I think I'll cut along now. But, but this excellent liqueur isn't half finished yet. Oh, no need for you to rush off. The two of you can stay and get better acquainted. It's been a very pleasant evening. Thanks. The prince made for the door of his harem. Steed moved after him. But, but your majesty, I... The prince disappeared inside. The door closed. The guards barred Steed's way with crossed scimitars. You're on your own now, Mrs. Peel. At that particular moment, Mrs. Peel, having worked her way through inspecting half the stone jars, was searching yet another. Empty. So Steve was right. Let's see. 
Yes, breathing holes drilled into the earth somewhere. So the killer is in the harem. Loose. In here at the moment, but where? Emma. Emma, little star of the east. Oh, no. Now for it. Your prince is here. Your prince is here. If the assassin's waiting, he couldn't be given a better chance. Prince is waiting. Princey's waiting for his Emma. Princey Wincy's coming to get you. Well, Princey Wincy will get a sick ear if he tries anything on. Mrs. Peel ducked into one of the cubicles, one that bore the name Miffy, number 238. The harem girl lay back on a lace coverlet. She was bound and gagged. So he's around here somewhere. Emma, my patience is running thin. Show yourself, woman. That is a command. Mrs. Peel stepped out into the corridor. Emma, Emma, my eastern star. The prince held out his arms... Mrs. Peel, looking beyond him, saw an arm stretched out from the drapes of another cubicle. She rushed forward, knocking the prince flying. Mrs. Peel grabbed at the gun arm and yanked Vincent out into the corridor like a ball from a cannon. She hurled him into the stone jars. Mrs. Peel, following through, rushing after Vincent. The prince picked himself up and watched in horrified amazement as Vincent snatched a scimitar from the wall. Right. It's about time I settle things with you once and for all. Vincent advanced on the helpless Mrs. Peel. Mrs. Peel kicked a honey jar over and rolled it at him. It tripped Vincent and gave Mrs. Peel time to snatch another scimitar from the wall. They fought. The prince winced as Vincent slashed out at Mrs. Peel. Mrs. Peel sidestepped and gave a powerful sweep with her scimitar. Crashed into Vincent's, knocking it from his hand. Mrs. Peel stepped forward and, placing the point of her sword at Vincent's throat, forced him back against the stone wall. Right. Start talking. Who's behind all this? Come on, talk. It was Arkady. Arkady's idea. Arkady's the man you want. Say that louder. Loud enough for everyone to hear. Come on. Steed and Arkady were still in the reception room. They'd heard the terrific noise from within the harem and then the voice. Uh, it was Arkady. Arkady's the man you want. He, he planned to kill the prince. I'll prove it. Steed looked at Arkady, who made for the exit. Steed grabbed him. No, no, you don't. Steed got hold of Arkady's evening jacket by the sleeves. Arkady merely slipped out of the coat and legged it for the exit, just as Mrs. Peel, having stopped only to lay out Vincent with the flat of her scimitar, appeared from the harem. Steed? Steed, where's Arkady? Gone. There's no great rush. I know where to find him. Look at this appointment slip in his pocket. Read it. QQF, Inc., fantasy number four, subject... Escape of Arkady from Pursuing Agents. Come on. My friend, my, my friend, I, I don't know what this is all about, but clearly you've saved my life. Anything I have is yours. My, my, my jewels, my horses. No, 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 really. My favorite wife. Oh, well, in that case... Oh, I'm... come on, Steed. You can't have me and a favorite wife. In the QQF... Arkady ransacked the drawers of the desks and searched all the filing cabinets, spinning papers all over the place. Eventually, he found what he was looking for. Ah, a forged passport. And an airplane ticket just in time. Just too late. What? Arkady swung round, gun at the ready. But Mrs. Peel, who was standing quite close, holding the trick Aladdin's lamp, merely smiled sweetly and gave the lamp a rub. He recoiled with surprise, and through the smoke haze, John Steed appeared with his umbrella. He swung it up quite high and brought it down on the back of Arkady's neck. Oh. Nicely timed, Steed. You were... Mrs. Peel broke off, peered through the haze. Steed had disappeared. Mrs. Peel looked down at the floor. 
There was a pause. And then, the sound of Steed's umbrella banging beneath. Sitting on the carpet in Steed's apartment. Well, Prince Ali signed the oil treaty. It's amazing. After all, we didn't succeed in keeping the murder attempt from him, did we? Yes, the top brass weren't too pleased about it, actually. We got a firm lecture. Oh, well. It was bound to happen someday. I always knew we'd end up on the carpet. Ah, but if you're with me, it's always a magic carpet, Mrs. Peel. Goat's milk or champagne? Friday to John Steed and Emma Peel, The Avengers, brought to you by the makers of Cold Water Omo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephen Carney. The Black Dog by Stephen Crane. There was a ceaseless rumble in the air as the heavy raindrops battered upon the laurel thickets and the matted moss and haggard rocks beneath. Four water-soaked men made their difficult ways through the drenched forest. The little man stopped and shook an angry finger at where night was stealthily following them. Cursed be fate and her children and her children's children. We are everlastingly lost, he cried. The panting procession halted under some dripping, drooping hemlocks and swore in wrathful astonishment. "'It will rain for forty days and forty nights,' said the pudgy man moaningly. "'And I feel like a wet loaf of bread now. "'We shall never find our way out of this wilderness until I am made into a porridge.' "'In desperation they started again to drag their listless bodies through the watery bushes. "'After a time the clouds withdrew from above them, "'and great winds came from concealment and went sweeping and swirling among the trees.' Night also came very near and menaced the wanderers with darkness. The little man had determination in his legs. He scrambled among the thickets and made desperate attempts to find a path or a road. As he climbed a hillock, he espied a small clearing upon which sat desolation and a venerable house, wept over by wind-waved pines. "'Here's a house!' 
His companion straggled painfully after him as he fought the thickets between him and the cabin. At their approach the wind frenziedly opposed them and skirted madly in the trees. The little man boldly confronted the weird glances from the crannies of the cabin and rapped on the door. A score of timbers answered with groans, and within something fell to the floor with a clang. Oh, said the little man. He stepped back a few paces. Somebody in the distant part started and walked across the floor toward the door with an ominous step. A slate-colored man appeared. He was dressed in a ragged shirt and trousers, the latter stuffed into his boots. Large tears were falling from his eyes. "'How do you do, my friend?' said the little man affably. "'My old uncle Jim Crocker, he's sick to death.' replied the slate-colored man. Oh, said the little man, is that so? The latter's clothing clung desperately to him, and water sogged in his boots. He stood patiently on one foot for a time. Can you put us up here until tomorrow? he asked finally. Yes, said the slate-colored person. The party passed into a little unwashed room inhabited by a stove, a stairway, a few precarious chairs, and a misshapen table. "'I'll fry you some poke and make you some coffee,' said the slate-colored man to his guests. "'Go ahead, old boy,' cried the little man cheerfully from where he sat on the table, smoking his pipe and dangling his legs. "'My old uncle Jim Crocker, he's sick to death,' said the slate-colored man. "'Think he'll die?' asked the pudgy man gently. No! No, he won't die. He's an old man, but he won't die yet. The black dog ain't been around yet. The black dog? said the little man feebly. He struggled with himself for a moment. What's the black dog? he asked at last. He's a spirit, said the slate-colored man in a voice of somber hue. Oh, he is, well... He haunts these parts, he does, and when people are going to die, he comes and he sits and howls. Oh, said the little man. He looked out of the window and saw night making a million shadows. The little man moved his legs nervously. I don't believe in these things, said he, addressing the slate-colored man who was scuffling with a side of pork. What things? came incoherently from the combatant. Oh, these are phantoms and ghosts and what not? All rot, I say. That's because you have merely a stomach and no soul, grunted the pudgy man. Oh, old pudgeons, cried the little man. His back curved with passion. A tempest of wrath was in the pudgy man's eye. The final epithet used by the little man was a carefully studied insult, always brought forth at a crisis. They quarreled. "'All right, Pudgeons, bring on your phantom,' cried the little man in conclusion. His stout companion's wrath was too huge for words. The little man smiled triumphantly. He had staked his opponent's reputation. The visitors sat silent. The slate-colored man moved about in a small, personal atmosphere of gloom. Suddenly, a strange cry came to their ears from somewhere— it was a low, trembling call which made the little man quake privately in his shoes. The slate-colored man bounded at the stairway and disappeared with a flash of legs through a hole in the ceiling. 
The party below heard two voices in conversation, one belonging to the slate-colored man, and the other in the quavering tones of age. Directly, the slate-colored man reappeared from above and said, The old man is took bad for his supper. He hurried, prepared a mixture with hot water, salt, and beef. Beef tea, it might be called. He disappeared again. Once more the party below heard, vaguely talking over their heads. The voice of age arose to a shriek. Open the window, fool! Do you think I can live in the smell of your soup? Mutterings by the slate-colored man and the creaking of the window were heard. The slate-colored man stumbled down the stairs and said with intense gloom, The black dog'll be along soon. The little man started, and the pudgy man sneered at him. They ate a supper and then sat waiting. The pudgy man listened so palpably that the little man wished to kill him. The wood fire became excited and sputtered frantically. Without, a thousand spirits of the wind had become entangled in the pine branches and were slowly pleading to be loosed. loosened. The slate-colored man tiptoed across the room and lit a timid candle. The men sat waiting. The phantom dog lay cuddled to a round bundle, asleep down the roadway against the windward side of an old shanty. The specter's master had moved to Pike County, but the dog lingered as a friend might linger at the tomb of a friend. His fur was like a suit of old clothes. His jowls hung and flopped, exposing his teeth. Yellow famine was in his eyes. The wind-rocked shanty groaned and muttered, but the dog slept. Suddenly, however, he got up and shambled to the roadway. He cast a long glance from his hungry, despairing eyes in the direction of the venerable house. The breeze came full to his nostrils. He threw back his head and gave a long, low howl and started intently up the road. Maybe he smelled a dead man. The group around the fire in the venerable house were listening and waiting. The atmosphere of the room was tense. The slate-colored man's face was twitching, and his drabbed hands were gripped together. The little man was continually looking behind his chair. Upon the countenance of the pudgy man appeared conceit for an approaching triumph over the little man, mingled with apprehension for his own safety. Five pipes glowed as rivals of a timid Campbell. Profound silence drooped heavily over them. Finally, the slate-colored man spoke. "'My old Uncle Jim Crocker, he's sick to death.' The four men started, and then shrank back in their chairs. "'Damn it!' replied the little man vaguely. Again there was a long silence. Suddenly it was broken by a wild cry from the room above. It was a shriek that struck upon them with appalling swiftness, like a flash of lightning. The walls whirled and the floor rumbled. It brought the men together with a rush— they huddled in a heap and stared at the white terror in each other's faces. The slate-colored man grasped the candle and flared it above his head. "'The black dog!' he howled and plunged at the stairway. The maddened four men followed frantically, for it is better to be in the presence of the awful than only within hearing. Their ears still quivering with the shriek, they bounded through the hole in the ceiling and into the sick-room, with quilts drawn closely to shrunken, his shrunken breath for a shield, his bony hand gripping the cover, an old man lay 
with glazing eyes fixed on the open window. His throat gurgled and the froth appeared at his mouth. From the outer darkness came a strange, unnatural wail, burdened with weight of death, and each note filled with foreboding. It was the song of the spectral dog. God! screamed the little man. He ran to the open window. He could see nothing at first save the pine trees, engaged in a furious combat, tossing back and forth and struggling. The moon was peeping cautiously over the rims of some black clouds. But the chant of the phantom guided the little man's eyes, and he at length perceived its shadowy form on the ground under the window. He fell away, gasping at the sight. The pudgy man crouched in a corner, chattering insanely. This late-colored man, in his fear, crooked his legs and looked like a hideous Chinese idol. The man upon the bed was turned to stone, save the froth which pulsated. In the final struggle, terror will fight the inevitable. The little man roared maniacal curses and, rushing again to the window, began to throw various articles at the specter. A mug, a plate, a knife, a fork, all crashed or clanged on the ground. But the song of the specter continued. The bowl of beef tea followed. As it struck the ground, the phantom ceased its cry. The men in the chamber sank limply against the walls with the unearthly wail still ringing in their ears, and the fear unfaded from their eyes. They waited again. The little man felt his nerves vibrate. Destruction was better than another wait. He grasped a candle, and, going to the window, held it over his head, and looked out. Oh, he said. His companions crawled to the window and peered out with him. He's eaten the beef tea said the slate-colored man faintly. The damn dog was hungry, said the pudgy man. There's your phantom, said the little man to the pudgy man. On the bed, the old man lay dead. Without, the specter was wagging its tail. The End of The Black Dog Well, ladies and gentlemen, we've made it. Well, maybe to the last break anyway, but I can promise this really is the last break. Up next is some truly historic radio. An episode of The Witch's Tale. The Witch's Tale is generally assumed to be the first horror-themed radio show in history, which happened when, in 1931, writer-director Alonzo Dean Cole convinced W.O.R. in New York to try a series devoted entirely to the supernatural. It kind of surprised everybody when it took off, as it did become the premier radio program of its day. and would run for seven years until 1938. Only about three dozen episodes survived. Apparently... In 1961, Cole had decided that there was no commercial value in the actual recordings of his program. 
And so he destroyed them. This particular episode, The Truth of Death, is from March the 11th of 1937 and stars 15-year-old Miriam Wolfe as Nancy, the old witch of Salem. The Witch's Tale. Fascination of the eerie, weird, blood-chilling tales told by old Nancy, the witch of Salem, and Satan, her wise black cat. They're waiting, waiting for you, now. Love you so. 
crickets, crickets. So it is back in this house, you saw, you creatures. I hope this time you'll come for luck. It was after you last killed Elsie that the man she wailed for Seamus, my man who now lies in his grave. Would it be this time a useless old woman like myself you're after cursing? Showed him you wish no evil on a sweet gossine like me daughter Nora. Now he is bred in salt for his doings. Stay in this house and welcome. But this time be your visit for good instead of ill. Come in, whoever you are, and peace be with you. Good evening to you, Susan O'Neill. Good evening to you, Michael Glennon. Is it alone, yeah? I have eyes to see that I am. And who did I hear you talking? What does I just pass by you, Windy? It was the crickets, may the son of God preserve us. You were talking to the crickets? Aye, close they are to the little people. And much harm or good they can bring to the house they enter. Crickets, little people. Ah. Michael Glennon, you know not what you say. Ah, they've stopped their chirping. Quick, speak them soft, apologize, or they and the she's will do you harm. Oh, enough of such old woman's talk. I'm here for speech with you concerning Bartley, my son, and your daughter, Nora. I've come to warn you that all goings-on between them must end. What do you mean? My Bartley has been to school in Galway. He's an educated man. And I have ambitions for him that I'll not be after seeing spoiled by his marriage with an ignorant country wench. Is it after telling me he's either that simple Connor Glennon objects to marriage with an O'Neill of Ulster? You see my point. The O'Neills are no longer kings in Ireland, whilst this Glennon myself owns the richest firm in County Clare. There can be no marriage, as I've already told me, son. You, you've told Bartley? Weeks ago. Yet every night he's called here for my Nora. Now they're out together on the heath. So I've suspected, and that's why I've come to warn you's fair. I saw you was a fool when just now you passed mortal insult on the crickets and the she's. But are you such a fool as to think you can curb young men and women in their love as you curb horses in their traces? Bartley is my son. You'll see I'll mould him to my will. No, Bartley, no. Nora, Lana, pity me. So? Sure, and I pitied you the not this evening. Now you've had your last kiss. Darling, just one. Oh, you know I can't deny you. I'll do the warning of your girl myself, Susan O'Neill. Sure, and there's no stopping a fool. Do so, and you must. Bartley! Oh, Father! Come inside here, both of you. Oh, Mr. Glennon, what? Come to your mother, oh. Nora, me angel. Try and stay with her. You, Bartley, come here with me. Oh, father. No words. Long ago, I told you to leave off courting of this girl. Bartley, you said... Long ago, he knew me wish. And now, this night, he'll know me will. Either he breaks off seeing you forever, or he's no longer son of mine. Away from him, I'll take everything that I've given. The money from his pocket, and the roof from over his head. Father, wait. You've heard me will. Say what's your choice, but say it now. Father, you don't know what you ask. Have pity. Oh, tell him, Bartley. Nora. I leave this house. You either follow me, or you stay behind for good. No, no, Father. You either come with me now, or stay. The Father, Father, wait for oh, me. Oh, Bartley. I'm coming with you, Father. I'm coming oh. with you. Oh. oh, Mother. And I believe the lies he told me. Oh, Mother, Nora, my angel. <laughs> Oh, Cricket, I might have known it was an omen when you stopped your chirping. Again, you brought evil to this house and gone away. Oh, Nora, you must believe me. I swear to you, I knew not what I did last night. You talked to me of marriage, known all the time it was against your father's wish. 
Then you followed him and his mind. After I'd given you my heart. But I didn't stay. I'm here again with you. That's in Christian place. Yes, in secret. Oh, Bartley. I'll marry you, darling, as I said. Father, money, nothing matters beside my love for you. You must believe me. You must take me to your heart again. Oh, Nora, Lana, pity me. Oh, I want to believe it's true to you speak. But you failed me one day. I'll never fail you more. Oh, Bartley, make me sure. Sure? And how will I prove it? Would you have me gather the stars from the sky and lay them at your feet? Shall I steal the moonlight from the waters for you? Anything I'll do to gain your love again? Will you plight with me the truth of death? The, the truth of death? Yes. Will you climb to the top of the fairy pink with me and swear our marriage with the locks of hair and the wedding ring from the hand of a corpse? I, I have no ring from the hand of a corpse. I have here the one my father wore. He took it from his finger as he lay in death. Oh, it is a fearful oath, the truth of death. You fear to take it. You do not love me. I swear I love you. Oh, lie to me no more. Go, get you gone. No, I must kiss you again. I must hold you in my arms. Oh, let me go. Now go and leave me. I want to see you never more. I'll do anything you wish to when you're back. Come, we'll climb the fairy spink. With you, I'll plate the truth of death. Give me a hand and start the climb. But mind the rocks and brambles. Like me, they're all eager to caress your soft white beauty. Be quick. Let's reach the top. You're not going to plight the truth, disbelieve in what you swear. You've said the little people are but foolish women's tales. You believe in them. That's all that matters. What will be the anger of the fairies if you plight the truth in jest? And terrible their vengeance. I'm not afraid. Sure, I'd brave all hell itself for you tonight. Let's quickly say the truth, for I'm hungry for your lips. Here. We're at the summit. Tread softly here, for the she's are all about. Oh, you look as if you really see the little people. I do. And the scapular I wear is the dust of a four-leaf shamrock. Mother gave me. With a charm like that, you can see them plain as day. Good evening, little people. I wish you joy and health. You're always kind to lovers. So hear our troth tonight. Oh, you seem so sure they're here. I... Well, let's leave this ghostly spin. Without the troth? Uh, oh, no, too great is my desire for you. But let's be quick. We have a knife. Cut the lock of hair from your head. There, there, it is done. Give it in my hand. I do the same with mine. Here, take it in exchange. Now break the ring in two. The gold is thin and soft. I break it. A wedding ring from the finger of a corpse. You keep one half and give the other half to me. Now take my hand. I speak the truth of death. Oh, it is gloomy here. Oh, son of God, and all the saints bear witness. Wait. I thought it was only on the shears you meant to call. I speak the truth of death. You swear it with me, or we part forever. I... I'll swear. Oh, son of God, and all the saints bear witness, and fairies of the glen, and fairies of the hills, all spirits of the oceans, earth and sky, witness how we slice our truth. Oh, the air is thick with shadows. The spirits hear, the fairies see. Look upon this man and I, here before thee, we now plight our marriage. With a ring from the dead, we bind our vow. And with locks of our living hair, never shall we break our oath. Never shall we be untrue, one unto the other. Oh. If this pledge be broken, may the guilty one be stricken dead and suffer punishment to God's great judgment day. I, not O'Neill, do swear this oath. You, Bartley Glennon, swear it too. I... Aye, Bartley Gannon, swear it too. No, 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 I'm afraid. Nora, give me back my oath. The troth of death, once plighted, stands forever. Oh, Bartley, I love you. I'm your wife now. Take me in your arms.
chirpy creatures. As if it wasn't enough evil you wrought in this poor house since two years ago you came before. Sure, and for all I spoke, you decent and gave your bread and salt. Come in, whoever you are, and taste be with you. So, tis you, my children. Ah, so is an O'Neill. Is it hating me forever you'll be because of the black-hearted son I brought into this world? Why have you come to this house of shame and sorrow? To tell you that the ship is coming home. At last. I... Well, as you know, I didn't want him to marry your daughter. But I'm asking you to believe that when I sent him away two years ago for a voyage round the world, I didn't know the harm his lying tongue had wrought. I'm a hard man, but a just one. And that's why I've come tonight. Yes, you was but a man. Neither hard nor just. Only vain and foolish. Perhaps you're right. Where is Nora and the babe? Out by the fairy spink. Every day she goes there, hoping your Bartley will come back and fulfill his vow of holy marriage. Mm. I hear her coming now. Mr. Glennon. Oh, peace be with you, Nora. Is, is it you've come to see you've heard from, from Bartley? Yes. His ship is coming home. Oh, pray the saints. My prayers are answered. Did you hear that, little Seamus, my babe? Your father's coming home. Nora, if you'd but accept a little money from me... Money? To only you? Get you from this house. Sure, I didn't mean... There's the door. Get out. I'm sorry. When my son comes home, I'll see that justice will be done. You'll see. You who molded him to your will and brought this all about. Get out. I didn't know. I didn't know. Oh, Mother, I'm so happy. At last he's coming home to keep the truth. Yes, he's coming home. Ah, Christian Donuts, Chalapi now for good or ill. Oh, Patrick, my lad, pour me out another drink. Faith, the ship rose, so it is hard to make the liquor find the glass. Ah, I've done it. Yeah. And now, Bartley, tell us some more about how you win the girls. Oh, it is a talent I have in a system. Of course, first you've got to tell the Vanga soon she's the most beautiful creature on all God's green earth. Then, if she remains cold or afraid of herself, I appeal not only to her female conceit, but also to her sympathy. I make her think I'll fall dead at her feet from love if she doesn't ease my heart with a kiss or two. <laughs> Molly, or Bridget, or Kathleen, I see, looking deep into her eyes. Oh, Alana, pity me. And it works, my lad. <laughs> it works. Such blimey is that. How can I help it for? <laughs> You look all bad. Captain's orders. All hands on deck. You passengers, no sleeping. We're not in any danger, are we? Uh, that no one knows when they're at sea. It's a step storm. How far are we off island now? Just off Hag's Head. If we don't go on the rocks, soon we'll be in Galway Bay. You two passengers are lucky. You can stay dry here below. But it's back on deck for me again. Oh, sure. It's as if the devil was at sea tonight. Or as if the shades were reaching out for this ship and me. What's the matter with you, Buckley? For the last two days, you've been talking of the little people. Uh, for the last two days, we've been approaching home. Patrick, you've been to school like me, yet you believe in the little people. Can schools make you forget what your mother taught you as a babe? Oh, I used to think so. Now, when I'm coming back to Ireland again, I'm not so sure. Patrick... Do you also believe in owls? What kind of owls? The kind you vow to heaven and the spirits and the she's. Sure, I do believe in that kind. I won't. She forced it on me. Blinded me, she did, with the whiteness of her skin, the softness of her body, and the beauty of her face. I won't believe. Whist me, lad, you're drunk and talking riddles. Uh, yes, that's it. I'm drunk. Uh, that's what makes me afraid of things I don't believe in. 
And soon we'll be in Galway, only 50 miles from home, and from the fairy spink. I won't get off this ship. The shees can't get me here. What are you talking about? Oh, nothing, nothing. The shees can't get me here. Uh, what's that? What? The cray. It is but a whistling of the wind. No! Hey, listen. It sounds like the keen of a woman. I hear nothing but the stone. Oh, once more it wails. She called the spirits of sea and sky as well as earth to witness. Badly you're drunk and talking mad. Oh, I know it. I know that king. It's the whale of a banshee. The banshee of my death. Crickets crap out your tunes in this poor old house of mine. Here again, I give you bread and salt so you know that we wish you well. Can you tell what song they play tonight, Mother? Is that patch at last for good instead of ill? It is hard to say. But I think, sweet Nora, that your battery will be coming soon. Oh, his ship should have entered Galway Bay last evening. Mother, that wail in which I heard, it was but a whining of the wind. Yes. It was not a banshee. It was a whining of the wind. Oh, it must have been. I shouldn't worry. But there's always danger for the men who sail in ships. An easy death at sea would be too good for one of his black hearts. I've never believed his heart is black. He was only weak and thoughtless. And I love him. Yes, you love him. You sure it was just the wind that wailed last night? And not the banshee of his death? Oh, Mother, you know how I prayed for him to come to me at last? He'll come to you. Which he, he vowed the troth of death. And so spirits and the she's will bring him to our door. It is midnight and time for that woman to be in bed. I'll be staying up a while. Who knows? He may come tonight. Who knows? Sure, the little people know and do all things. Good night, sweet Nora, and God bless him. Good night, Mother. And the blessed saints protect you. Good night, crickets of Orneen. Please, heaven, your cherub for good this night. The little people know and do all things. Oh, fairies of the glen and fairies of the hills, spirits of the ocean, earth and sky, bring my Bartley back to me. Nora. Nora. Bartley. Lost. I'm coming to meet you, Bartley. Nora. Nora. Oh, Bartley, dear, where are you? Lover, I cannot see you. Nora. Where are you, dear? Where are you? Lost, forever lost. From a broken clock, I'm punished to God's great judgment. Oh, Bartley. Nora, Alana, pity me. Pity me. Oh, it was not a wailing of the wind I heard last night. There's nothing I must wait for now. Ah, 
cricket's again you brought the banshee wailing by this house. For there's been a keening for me girly Nora. And her babe sleeps beside her in the churchyard's blessed grounds. Will it now be this useless old woman you're after cursing crickets? Sure and it's all right. When you get it over with, this heart will be yours alone. Come in, whoever you are, and peace be with you. Good evening to you, Michael Glennon. Uh, good evening to your souls and all here. Do you mind if I sit down in your chimney corner? Sit yourself and welcome. The wakes have passed. The keening's over. My son is dead. And my daughter. She couldn't live without him. And the bed. Our grandchild, too. Our grandchild. Just a man I was, you once said. Neither had nor just. Only vain and foolish. Yes, just a man. So a fool. It is lonesome when you're old and all alone. We won't have long for lonesomeness. Nothing is long except eternity. Nora. 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 Every night he walks abroad, a formless ghost that none can see. Nora. Nora. Searching for her always to repair his ground. But never will he find her till the judgment day. Punished forever for his sins. Oh, Lord. And how will mine be punished? Here, crickets, your creatures, is your bread and salt. Satan. <laughs> you folks come see us when old Nancy has a birthday again. <laughs> this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joy Chan. English Fairy Tales Collected by Joseph Jacobs. Chapter 34. The Cat and the Mouse. The cat and the mouse played in the malt house. The cat bit the mouse's tail off. Pray, puss, give me my tail. No, says the cat, I'll not give you your tail till you go to the cow and fetch me some milk. First she leapt and then she ran, till she came to the cow and thus began. Pray, cow, give me milk, that I may give cat milk, that cat may give me my own tail again. No, said the cow, I will give you no milk, till you go to the farmer and get me some hay. First she leapt and then she ran, till she came to the farmer and thus began. Pray, farmer, give me hay, that I may give cow hay, that cow may give me milk, that I may give cat milk, that cat may give me my own tail again. No, says the farmer, I'll give you no hay till you go to the butcher and fetch me some meat. First she leapt and then she ran, till she came to the butcher and thus began. Pray, butcher, give me meat, that I may give farmer meat, that farmer may give me hay, 
that I may give cow hay, that cow may give me milk, that I may give cat milk, that cat may give me my own tail again. No, says the butcher, I'll give you no meat till you go to the baker and fetch me some bread. First she leapt and then she ran, till she came to the baker and thus began. Pray, baker, give me bread, that I may give butcher bread, that butcher may give me meat, that I may give farmer meat, that farmer may give me hay, that I may give cow hay, that cow may give me milk, that I may give cat milk, that cat may give me my own tail again. Yes, says the baker, I'll give you some bread, but if you eat my meal, I'll cut off your head. Then the baker gave mouse bread, and mouse gave butcher bread, and butcher gave mouse meat, and mouse gave farmer meat, and farmer gave mouse hay, and mouse gave cow hay, and cow gave mouse milk, and mouse gave cat milk, and cat gave mouse her own tail again. This town is full of guys who think they're mighty wise just because they know a thing or two. Why, you can see them every day strolling up and down Broadway telling of the wonders they can do. You'll see wise guys and boosters, card shops and crap shooters, they congregate around the metropole. They wear those flashy ties and collars, but where they get their dollars, they've all got an ace down in the hole. Now some of them write to the old folks for coin, and that's their ace in the hole. While others have gas on that old tender lawn. And that's their ace in the hole They'll tell you of money They've made and they've spent But they never can find a bankroll And their names would be mud Like a chump dealing stud If they lost that old ace in the hole